When your child is struggling, as a parent, you need support. Welcome to Beyond Risk and Back. I'm at the 46th Annual Psychotherapy Associates Winter Symposium. This is in Colorado Springs, and once again, I get my hands on the experts. The men and women who are speaking at this conference, the, the, the other people having booths here, this is where all the experts in the industry of mental health and addiction and recovery gather to share the information they have, and I wanna get it into your hands. So thank you for joining me on this week's episode of Beyond Risk and Back. With all this talk about addiction, and again, whether it's you know substances or self-harm or social media, internet, pornography, gambling, we're, it's been, it's been simplified and oversimplified to the point that the, the experts don't agree on what we're telling some people addiction is. And it's been so complicated and made complex that it leaves the, the layman out of the conversation. I have uh, Dr. Hans Watson here with me and that's going to be the question that we're going to ask this doctor to solve for us. What is addiction? Uh, Dr. Watson, thanks for being with us on Beyond Risk and Back. Help my parents out. They got a, they got a kid who has proven, air quotes, that marijuana is not addictive. But yet this kid is stealing, he's breaking the law, he's lying, he's sneaking around. Uh, grades have tanked, uh, been busted at school, has MIPs, and for all intents and purposes, this looks like a heroin addict, except it's not addictive. How can cutting be addictive? Is there such thing as internet addiction? What is, let's, let's go right into it, after you tell us what you're a doctor in and how you ended up at this conference. Great, I appreciate that. Uh... So I'm actually a general psychiatrist who has quite a history behind him. Uh, used, to, uh, used to be in the Army, was an enlisted guy who eventually uh, uh, became into ROTC and became an officer. And, and so I, I'm not your typical person who just is able to memorize all the facts, remember them, and simply repeat them back. I'm the kind of guy who will not remember things if I don't understand the why behind them. In okay. fact, that's, uh, that's the foundation for... Uh, the practice that I've started with University Elite, and uh, the whole idea is I'm not going to remember a hundred individual facts, I'm going to remember concepts of why, and if I, I wholeheartedly believe that Albert Einstein was credited with saying it, and he's right, if you can't explain it simply, you don't understand it. That's what uh, he was said, and so that's that's really where I come from on this is, whether you have depression, whether you have anxiety, whether you have post-traumatic stress disorder, schizophrenia, or some type of addiction, my job as a psychiatrist is help you to find out the why and be able to understand it in simple terms. My job is to learn all the details to be able to simplify that and make a difficult concept something easier to understand. So that's, that's really where I come from and my approach to psychiatry comes from is there's probably smarter people that are gonna remember more but you'll, it'll be difficult to find somebody who's been forced to put together all the concepts that can break it down more easily than I am. Maybe somebody that are equal, but, but I would guess difficult to find somebody that's going to be better. How long have you been working with uh, addiction, 
mental health issues. Oh, so that's uh, right from the beginning of my training. It was actually starting in my residency. The very first day I reported to the VA hospital and they said, uh, you're now going down to the, uh, <laughs> to the addiction specialist, a psychiatrist. And from the first second I walked in, she said to me, is addiction a disease? And I remember saying to her, I don't know. And she said, well, then give me an opinion based on no knowledge. And I said to her, okay. And I originally said, no, it is not. And then she said, why not? And then I said, oh, wait, yes, it is. <laughs> and, and pretty soon uh, she started saying, what is your reason for that? And I said, well, the reason for me waffling is because I don't understand why it would be or wouldn't be at this point. And, and that was the start of me starting to try to figure out the why behind it and and that was the drive for me to learn more than just what medicines do I give for these symptoms. Right. Instead, it was what causes somebody psychologically to be more predisposed to use substances or harm yourself or suicide. Because we know there's an association with all of those. So there's got to be something in common. Right. Versus somebody who's really not going to struggle with it. And that was the start of my quest to understand all things. And addiction turned out to be one of the most rewarding areas because uh, you could actually visibly see people improve when a, when a uh, person who is nicknamed a crackhead quits using crack cocaine and you suddenly see them heal and their body looks more healthy, they are making healthier choices, it feels good to have been a part of that and that's why easily getting into those that uh, have these difficult mental health things it was an easy fit for me because there's an immediate reward when people improved. So let's let's start with that question then. Um, is addiction a disease? Yes and no. Half uh, the people in the room just shot you a dirty look. <laughs> so, <laughs> and 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 you know uh, the reason I say yes and no is um, disease processes is defined by something that is changed that now is pathological or wrong. Okay. And we know that in the brain, there are certain parts of the brain that when you get addicted to a substance or you use a substance, for some people, it can be the first time they use it. For other people, it's the 50th time. But we see changes that can actually be identified on functional MRIs. Those are special MRIs that tell you right. when a part of your body is working or not. And we see people with, with certain... Um, with, with all addictions, eventually we see parts of the brain that aren't working properly. And so at that point, yes, it is a disease, but that doesn't explain the why behind somebody's use. And, and the, common, the common example that I think is a valid example, and it's been repeated by many, was during Vietnam, of those, those soldiers and airmen, the, the troops that used heroin, um, we said this is going to be tr very troublesome because this is completely a physiologic addiction. They, they even use the term chemical hooks. Right. And these veterans came home and the vast majority of them did not ever use heroin again. And so we started saying if these chemical hooks were in there, that they should have been a much higher percentage. It was something like a 20%. I don't remember the exact stat, but it was the vast majority, 80% never did. And then we look at it also, if you get um, hydrocodone, used to be called Lortab. Right. If you get that, the vast majority of the people will not 
abuse them. They'll use them coming out of a surgery. It's a legitimate use. And they'll use them, and they don't have a problem. In fact, many times they'll say, I don't want to become addicted. And you'll see them with two or three pills in the cupboard. They're not jonesing for more, as the old saying goes. Right. And so the question was, if these chemical hooks, which are, are the theory behind addiction, are there, there's got to be something more than just, you have a disease, there's zero, zero fault of your own, and so you can't dismiss it as part of a disease, but you also can't pin it 100% on there. Yeah, so, so let, me, let me ask that. And, and my way of, of kind of reposing this question was so much of the focus in my recovery came about the abstinence of that substance, mm-hmm. right? And I stopped smoking pot and doing LSD, and my drinking went up a little bit. And then it went up a lot. And so I, at a year after that, the drinking and the pot and the LSD all came to a halt. And suddenly I was in toxic relationships. And when I finally confronted the toxic relationships, things, eating issues started to show up. Yes. And it was at that point that I was like, oh, the problem's Aaron, not weed and women and food. And, and even more so is that like you can see a lot of the people where you will see them, they'll be, you know, addicts on the street and then they find fitness and they're just addicts in the gym and body dysmorphia starts up. Yes. So is that the disease component you're talking about as the brain change and needs to maintain the change? Or is that actually saying it's not a disease because it's not around this one subject? Did I convolute the subject or have I clarified it? Well, it depends on who you ask there because some people (laughs) would say you've hit the nail on the head and other people would shoot you a dirty look and tell you you're naive. I'm naive. So so the answer is it's a little of both. Okay. Um, When you get at the root of of all disease, now I'm I'm somebody who has uh, been one of the authors actually for a textbook on, uh, a textbook chapter on how do we approach people. It's, there's a approach to it called motivational interviewing and I was sure. one of the and authors. About motivational interviewing yes. is a we train our staff in it. It's exactly. a brilliant so modality. I am I am considered an expert by whoever considers people experts in motivational interviewing. Wow. I wrote a substance abuse treatment curriculum and we taught those to internal medicine and family med doctors who do the majority of interventions when it comes to people that are, are having problems with uh, substance abuse. And so in the end of the day, it depends on your take on that. But the answer is all addiction, uh, now this is extremely oversimplified, but when it comes down to it, there's a part of your brain called the amygdala. This is the emotional center of your brain. This, This does both positive and negative emotions. And it's part of your unconscious brain. I mean, we can give an example of that. How many times have you chosen to feel sadness? I don't think anybody out there is going to say, I choose sadness today. It's an unconscious thing. It's the same unconscious part of your brain. Now, we're oversimplifying so that we're not doing a med school neurobiology course. (laughs) Thank God. But it's, um, it's, it's the same unconscious part that keeps your heart beating when you're asleep, that keeps your lungs breathing. It also is the one that's going to produce your emotions. Otherwise, I would never choose sadness in my life. I wouldn't choose anger either. Exactly. So what we're looking at with this is that's the part of our brain that has a secondary role. And its secondary role is identify anything that might be a danger. 
Do you notice the big difference there? Yeah. It, I didn't say anything that was a realistic danger. Right. I said its job is to identify anything that might be a danger. And so it's supposed to look out into our environment and say, hey, check out this, this, and this. Tell me if any of those are a danger that I need to respond to. But this is not the smart part of our brain. This is the part of our brain that just associates things. Hey, that one time was a danger. This kind of looks like that thing. Could this also be a danger? Let me let me let me help to simplify that as well because if you are brutally attacked and beaten by a man wearing khaki pants and a red shirt and then you go into target. All right? Like your amygdala is going it gives you the radar scan and said, "Hey, all this could be dangerous. What do you think?" That's right, because right? there's there's khakis and red shirts in everywhere. Here. Well, what's meant to happen in your brain is the frontal lobe. This is where your conscious thought, for all intents and purposes, right. is. If your frontal lobe says, "Okay, we have a potential danger of khakis and red shirt in Target," right. Now, all of a sudden, it's going to start analyzing. That's where our analysis happens. And what do we find? It says in there. Actually, this gentleman, his entire focus is helping me to get to the laundry detergent inside here. He's not a danger to me. He wants to, and when I have a question of, am I going to use Tide versus Gain laundry detergent, his job is to say, well, let me tell you the difference in this the This one's on sale. Yes, so. and so, so he's clearly not a threat. Right. But if we listen to that and we misinterpret the way that that unconscious part of the brain, specifically the amygdala, because remember, it doesn't have a mouth that it can talk to the frontal lobe. It's unconscious, right. therefore you're not aware of it. The only way it can communicate is through physical symptoms. Hey, you need to know this might be a threat, and so what does it do? It says, hey, I'm gonna make your heart beat a little faster. Right, my belly your, gets tight. Your belly gets tight. All the not symptoms that we have codified under the term anxiety and so now the little lie that we've all told ourselves is when you feel anxiety this means we are in real danger that's the little lie that we've told ourselves whereas the truth is that's your amygdala communicating this is a potential danger that needs to be evaluated We'll get back to our guest in just a second. I got to make a quick shout out to two organizations that have really helped out Fire Mountain and Beyond Risk and Back at our booth here at the Winter Symposium. First is Guayaki Yerba Mate. They have given us cases and cases of this amazing, incredible drink to hand out to other people, to get people in the industry of mental health and addiction to understand the benefits of Guayaki Yerba Mate and brain recovery, brain building. I could, I could spend an entire episode, which I did, by the way, with one of the co-founders, David Carr. So go listen to that Beyond Risk and Back episode. And you can always Google benefits, scientific benefits, scientific research behind Yerba Mate, and you will understand why we give this drink out to people in the industry. This is a hidden gem that is getting more and more popular. So please support us being supported by Guayaki Yerba Mate and go pick yourself up a can and get some for your teens. And then second, I need to thank Psychotherapy Associates Winter Symposium people themselves for letting us be here and broadcasting this show and helping us email all of the speakers to get the information, the, 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 the new cutting edge research 
in brain development, addiction recovery, mental health. And I get to interview these incredible people and get their information into your heads, parents. So thank you to Winter Symposium and thank you to Guayaki. Okay, let's get back to our guest. All right, so we're talking about the amygdala. We're breaking down different components of the brain to simplify uh, what's actually going on in, in, is addiction a disease? What is addiction? So back to the amygdala and it's unconsciousness. Good, so, so we talked about uh, there is a potential danger out there that we misinterpret those physical symptoms of anxiety Instead of recognizing this is nothing more than a communication to the frontal lobe saying, right, right. please analyze and tell me whether this is a danger or not. Instead, we, we misinterpret that as I am in danger. And then we immediately take action to keep ourselves safe when there was no danger. The perfect example would be, is there a potential for lightning to be present when you go outside? The statistical answer is yes, there is a potential. But on a sunny day with no clouds, it's not a realistic threat. Right, right. Well, if you started running away from the outside every time there was a potential threat of, of lightning, you wouldn't live a normal life. We do similar things in our lives. Things that are going to be really hard for us and cause us emotional or even physical pain, but typically emotional pain is much worse than physical pain we'd much rather get beat up than we would have to feel rejected and unloved right and so there are a few different ways that we naively try to quiet the amygdala so that it does not send that message of hey please look at this and let us misinterpret it as i'm in danger right and so some of those ways could be you could inflict personal pain on yourself by cutting yourself that's one way to try to avoid confronting this hard thing. A second way could be, I could take a chemical substance that inhibits my neurons in my brain from functioning properly, so I'll just be so zonked out that I won't have to remember it, such as marijuana is right. a hallucinogenic that does right. that. Right. You know, crack cocaine is one, methamphetamine, yeah. we can name all the drugs. What's another one? One of the most potent ones to inhibit neuronal functioning is alcohol. What else could be? Could sex be one? Pornography? Well, you bet. So now we're starting to go down. Anything that we could use to distract from, from actually analyzing and confronting things that are hard for us in our life can become an addiction. Because once it was actually hard, potentially life-threatening, uh, limb-threatening, and our amygdala has set up the, the alert system. Yes. Now, because we're getting so many signals from the amygdala and our nervous system is starting to get shot because you know it's like hey red pants and khakis red pants and khakis red pants and khakis red pants and khakis and finally we're like can't handle the red pants and khakis alert anymore i'm gonna take some mental ibuprofen right and now i don't have to it's all good and that is where we get into trouble because that makes specific changes in the brain because now we're talking about some of these substances in fact all the all the street drugs will cause us to have an artificial spike to the part of our brain that is the reward center and the other center that's called the nucleus accumbens yeah. and the second part of the brain called the ventral tegmental area which makes us look to set off the reward center and so now we are actually causing a change where we start to seek that. And we can never replace it. The difference is 
eventually we find other replacements that are healthy, such as we get the same reward center that goes off when we overcome hard things. Right. That is why it's such a, a neat thing to win a championship. That was really hard. That's why some people just stopping smoking, they will get a natural high every time they talk so about that. So could this be one of the arguments where people are saying, hey, going to 12-step meetings can be its own addiction because people are actually getting fed through their brain chemistry the reward system because they have overcome a hard thing and it feels good to talk about this. Not stuff. only that, but let's add to it. And now I'm connected with people who accept me. We know love and sex are two of the highest there. And I would never, I would never encourage mixing sex in, and a recovery such as a 12 they step. They call that the 13th step, right? <laughs> and that's, that's a very dangerous component. Yes. But I do like the group dynamic where you feel appreciated, you feel accepted. And that's the foundation of all substance abuse treatment is we help these people. And that's why there's a hundred different ways to do yeah. it is to help these people start to say, I'm going to recognize and I'm still okay in spite of having a huge psychological deficit in I'm running from something. Right. I can make that into a strength one day. And, and I have a group that is going to reward me with emotional reward and sometimes physical for doing this. And so we, it is a disease in that fact, but it's not a disease as in we're completely... Uh, you know, you get cancer most of the time. I know smoking is, somebody's going to say smoking, please mm -hmm. accept. But a lot of times you get cancers, it's not your fault. Right. You didn't do anything wrong right. to, to, to get a, a bone cancer, for instance. That's right. a disease. Well, this is also a disease, but the difficulty is I had a part to play in this, just like diabetes. Right. But that doesn't make me a bad person. That makes me a person with a weakness. And unless you're Muhammad, Buddha, or or uh, Jesus, you aren't a perfect person. So let's stop believing that facade that we have to be perfect to be worthwhile. And let's start building a real foundation in our therapies of, here's your, you've changed your brain. Your brain is now used to that reward. You're always going to think, I have an easy button to feel good about myself. I now have a disease to where I'm always going to desire that that drug, that pornography, the easy distraction of cutting myself. And if we break it down, what's the easiest way to escape our problems and never have to deal with them again? It's suicide. Yeah. You look at suicide, that's nothing more than a sophisticated way of running away from our problems. And so I don't want that to sound harsh or, or like in belittling people who try suicide, but the foundation, the psychological basis is run away from my problems. And so that's the entire basis of all substance treatment is we recognize, accept that we're still good people in spite of our weaknesses, and then we start working on confronting weaknesses and making them eventually into a strength. All right, so parents are going to want to start to read what you got. What are, what are, you're, you're here doing a talk, uh -huh. and you've got a book. So currently my books are not, not published. Okay. Um, uh, I'm, I'm working with a publisher, and I'm probably still a, uh, a year out on my, on my book on Got it. On Your this. website, then, yeah. you want to I have a website where, where people can get some information. Um, what we're actually going to have is um, I, people pay a lot of money to see me for cash, and, uh, but over the next year, we're actually producing a video set. Uh, it's basically a video course okay. where people can come on and for instead of paying me 
three to five hundred dollars an hour to work with them. They can pay fifty to seventy dollars an hour and get many hours of content and learn exactly what we're talking about and Wonderful. learn strategies. And that'll be coming out over the next year. It's going to be on the website universityelite.com. Okay. And uh, that's where uh, you'll see that here coming up. But um, in the meantime, I'll just continue to to give these uh, lectures at conferences when when people bring me in and, and to see every possible patient that I can. Yeah, can people reach you directly if they want to work with you directly, and how do they do so? Uh, so you have to be, yes, you could go to the website, and uh, the federal law requires that uh, I have to have a license, or some of my psychiatrists and psychologists have to have a license in the state where these people live. Yes. But we do, um, it's all video-based in mine, so uh, as long as you have an internet connection and a phone or a computer, uh, we can do care. And if people need medicines, I can call into your pharmacy from where I'm living with the best of them. Uh, and so it's, it's neat with the internet. We no longer have to be in the same place as the right. best doctors. We can shop around. We can shop. And, and that's that's kind of the model that I, I reached way more people using this, and, and it's been neat to get to people that normally wouldn't be able to because of distance or other things, as well as safety and confidentiality. Many yeah. people love that they can. I have many people, in fact, that are very successful financially and other things that use me because nobody knows they're logging onto the Internet and working with a psychiatrist. Right, right. So, Dr. Hans Watson, say your uh, website one more time. It's universityelite.com. Thanks for coming on the air on Beyond Risk and Back, sharing this with parents. This was uh, oddly clarifying, despite having to listen to some doctor lingo for a minute. It's like, I, it, it really, this has taken me a lot deeper to, to see, like, there's a simplistic cycle that addiction answers very, very quickly, and recovery answers it too, and it... It makes sense. So thank you very much for your time. All right. My pleasure. This has been another episode of Beyond Risk and Back. Thank you so much for joining me, parents. Please remember to give us a listen, a like, a subscribe, and share us with your friends, other parents who need the support. I have a few people I'd like to thank. First is Frazier PR. I'd also like to thank Your Cause Consulting. And I need to give a shout out to Deepin Productions. As always, thank you to Mental Health News Radio for hosting this show. And I'd like to thank Guayaki. Guayaki has sponsored our booth here at the Winter Symposium. And of course, all my fans everywhere all over the world, thank you so much for making Beyond Risk and Back a number one parenting podcast. Remember, parents, take care of yourself first, your adult relationships second, and your children third, because in that way, we do our best work with our children. I'll see you next week.